104.6. Radio Buddha's Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to the sound of Universal Compassion. Today is the 21st of August. We will continue listening to Tangent's previous program with the book Mind Trainings Like the Race of Sun by Lam Kapow. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, thanks for joining the program and I hope you've had a wonderful week. We are investigating the text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by the Tibetan teacher Namkar Pell and have come to the section titled What Appears in the Text as Maxims. We've gone through a number of these mind training maxims such as avoid poisonous food, don't maintain inverted loyalty, don't make malicious banter, don't wait in ambush and so on and have most recently been talking about the maxim don't turn a god into a demon. Last week we used a very particular example of this, how a Buddhist monk in Myanmar is using his position as a supposedly compassionate and wise person to foster hatred and disharmony against Muslims. This is turning a god into a demon, using something that is beneficial into something that is vicious and harmful. In his commentary in Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving-Kindness, Chogyung Trumpa uses this specific training called Tong Len as another example. Tong Len is basically the meditation practice of taking on others' suffering and giving them lo- loving-kindness, often done on the in and out breaths. Done over a long period of time, its purpose is to develop within us a vast increased compassion and loving-kindness, which in turn can eventually lead to bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. But can you see that Tonglen is an extremely beneficial practice even if it doesn't lead to bodhicitta? By taking on all others' suffering and giving them all one's own happiness, we are aspiring to help countless other beings even if it means some discomfort to ourselves. But actually, it has been proved that this practice is extremely helpful for our own minds as well. The renowned Buddhist nun Pema Chodron explains it like this. Tonglen practice is a method for connecting with suffering, our own and that which is all around us everywhere we go. It's a method for overcoming our fear of suffering and for dissolving the tightness of our hearts. Primarily, it's a method for awakening the compassion that is inherent in all of us, no matter how cruel or cold we might seem to be. We begin the practice by taking on the suffering of a person who we know to be hurting and wish to help. For instance, if we know of a child who's being hurt, we breathe in with a wish to take away all of that child's pain and fear. Then, as we breathe out, we send happiness, joy, or whatever would relieve the child. This is the core of the practice, breathing in others' pain so they can be well and have more space to relax, 
and open, breathing out, sending them relaxation or whatever they, we feel would bring them relief and happiness. Often, however, we can't do this practice because we come face to face with our own fear, our own resistance or anger, or whatever our personal pain happens to be just then. At that point, we can change the focus and begin to do Tonglen for what we are feeling and for millions of other people just like us who at that very moment are feeling exactly the same stuckness and misery. Maybe we are able to name our pain. We recognize it clearly as terror or revulsion or anger or wanting to get revenge. So we breathe in for all the people who are caught with that same emotion and we send our relief for whatever opens up the space for ourselves and all those countless others. Maybe we can't name what we're feeling, but we can feel it, a tightness in the stomach, a heavy darkness, or whatever. We simply contact with what we are feeling and breathe in, take it in, for all of us, and send out relief to all of us. People often say that this practice goes against the grain of how we usually hold ourselves together. Truthfully, this practice does go against the grain of wanting things on our own terms, wanting everything to work out for ourselves, no matter what happens to the others. The practice dissolves the walls we've built around our hearts. It dissolves the layers of self-protection we've tried so hard to create. In Buddhist language, one would say that it dissolves the fixation and clinging of ego. Tonglen reverses the usual logic of avoiding suffering and seeking pleasure. In the process, we become liberated from the very ancient patterns of selfishness. We begin to feel love for both ourselves and others. We begin to take care of ourselves and others. Tonglen awakens our compassion and introduces us to a far bigger view of reality. It introduces us to the unlimited spaciousness of shunyata. By doing the practice, we begin to connect with the open dimension of our being. At first, this allows us to experience things as not such a big deal and not so solid as they seemed before. Tonglen can be done for those who are ill, those who are dying or who have died, those who are in pain of any kind. It can be done as a formal meditation practice or right on the spot at any time. We're out walking and we see someone in pain. Right on the spot we can begin to breathe in that person's pain and send out relief. Or we're just as likely to see someone in pain and look away. The pain brings up our fear or anger. It brings up our resistance and confusion. So on the spot, we can do Tonglen for all the people just like ourselves, all those who wish to be compassionate but instead are afraid, who wish to be brave but instead are cowardly. Rather than beating ourselves up, we can use our personal stuckness as a stepping stone to understanding what people are up against all over the world. Breathe in for all of us and breathe out for all of us. Use what seems like poison as medicine. We can use our personal suffering as the path to compassion for all beings. Now, before continuing, let's keep Pema Chodron's words in mind to firm up our motivation for participating in the program today. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can use the program to, as she says, reverse the usual logic of avoiding suffering and seeking pleasure and liberate ourselves from our ancient patterns of selfishness. 
Then we can start to feel love for both ourselves and others, to take care of ourselves and others while awakening our compassion and introducing ourselves to a far bigger view of reality, the unlimited spaciousness of shunyata. And so, may we begin to connect with the open dimension of our being. Let's take a moment to think about such motivation. Thank you. So it's obvious that this practice is of very great benefit to oneself and others. But Chogun Trumpa says it can lead to a very undesirable state, the state in which the god Tonglen has been turned into the demon of pride and arrogance. This is what he says. This slogan refers to our general tendency to dwell on pain and go through life with constant complaints. We should not make painful that which is inherently joyful. At this point, you may have achieved a certain level of taming yourself. You may have developed the Tonglen practice of exchanging yourself for others and feel that your achievement is real. But at the same time, you are so arrogant about the whole thing that your achievement begins to become an evil intention because you think you can show off. In that way, Dharma becomes a Dharma or non-Dharma. This is not only true with Tonglen, though, is it? Whatever beneficial practice we do, and it may not even be a Buddhist practice, we can develop pride in ourselves and deride others who haven't achieved our heights or lived up to our expectations. In terms of the slogan, we can turn any god into a demon, and it happens so easily. The ego is all to subvert our actions or intentions to its own end, making them the precursors of discomfort and suffering rather than peace and well-being. It is what we often naturally do, isn't it? But, as Pema Chodron says, and Anne Lamott agrees, although it may be counterintuitive, we can continue to be warm-hearted even when the demands of our self-centeredness become most strident. Anne Lamott is an American novelist and non-fiction writer, progressive political activist, public speaker and writing teacher, and says something like this in an interview with Hugh Delahante on the website www.mindful.org. She has written a book titled Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy, in which she writes, Mercy, grace, forgiveness and compassion are synonyms, and the approaches we might consider taking when facing a great big mess, especially the great big mess of ourselves, our arrogance, greed, poverty, disease, prejudice. It includes everything out there that just makes us want to turn away, the idea of accepting life as it presents itself and doing goodness anyway, the belief that love and caring are marbled even into the worst life has to offer. In the interview she says, I also feel strongly that the counterintuitive thing to do in the face of the danger and chaos is to find mercy within yourself and operate from that place instead of strategically trying to suss things out. I spend a lot of time with little kids and I've noticed I've become really merciful and open when they're around. They're crazily generous. My grandson will give stuff away that I don't want him to give away. The merciful heart is really rich at four or five but then it begins to diminish. In kindergarten, you're all part of the litter, all sleeping on the floor together. Then in the first grade, you learn subtraction, something before anybody else, and you start getting esteemed for that. 
pretty soon you go from being in the litter to being singled out for praise. You start putting things in the drawer that don't serve you, like wonder and connection to life. Your parents don't want you to be one of. They want you to start excelling. And that leads to perfectionism. But if you're getting your value from excelling, you have to do more and more things perfectly. And pretty soon, you're a completely doomed human being. Lamotte has called mercy a radical kindness. And Hugh Delahante asked what she means by that. She says, it's radical in the sense that you would never expect it. I find a warmth in my heart where once there was bad energy. I may have the conviction that someone has sinned against me to such a degree that I'll never have anything to do with him or her again. But instead, I begin to see the fear and grief behind their bad behavior, and my heart softens. That, to me, is the hugest miracle of all. A man in our neighborhood just hates me and my dog, Ladybird, who's like Dinah Shaw running around the neighborhood so sweet and so loving. He constantly calls the Humane Society to talk to me about keeping her on a leash. A few weeks ago, he and I really got into it. He took a picture to show the Humane Society that Ladybird was not on a leash. And I said, make sure to get a picture of your dog and my dog kissing and licking each other's noses, because that's what they were doing. I was on red alert. But afterwards I said to myself, Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? So I prayed deeply and the other day when I saw him, I didn't go into the story I usually tell myself. Ladybird started running over to his dog and I said, Sorry, sorry. Automatically it was weird and neither he nor I got into being morally superior. You take action and insights follow. That's mercy at work. We come into the world merciful And we can be that way again once we realize we have so many stories about ourselves and other people and so many defenses against feeling exposed. Little by little, we can start dropping that armor and practice being real instead of putting on those great social personas we've mastered. When you're real with somebody, they will be real back. And when you're back in your original, merciful, authentic selves, that breeds wonder and a deep sense of presence. But, Delahanty notes, that doesn't come easy. It takes a lifetime to heal from the toxic self-consciousness we all develop in school, says Anne Lamotte. But the good news is, that's why we're here. You can begin when you decide to do anything that makes you feel enlivened again. You do it imperfectly, two steps forward and one back. The hardest part is extending mercy to ourselves. To use a merciful voice with yourself when the work doesn't go well or you've acted like an a-hole. Several years ago, Maria Shriver asked me to come to Los Angeles to take part in a women's conference. I just loathed her husband, then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I wrote, Thank you so much, but I need to be honest and say that my work as an activist is mostly directed at your husband. She replied, Of course I would never want you to be part of a conference when your feelings about my husband are so strong. I thought to myself, what an a-hole, Annie. So I threw myself at her mercy. I wrote, I will not be able to express in words how contrite and full of exhausted fury I am with myself for having said something like that about your dear husband. 
I don't expect for you to be able to forgive me, but please know that I've noticed what I did and I'm humiliated by my behavior. God bless you both. And she took me back in and we started over. Being in recovery for 30 years helped me clear out a lot of that garbage and self-loathing. There's a famous saying in recovery, you're as sick as your secrets, and I absolutely believe that. I don't keep secrets because this jungle drum starts beating inside me. I always spill the beans. Before I got sober, I converted to Christianity, and that came, as so many things do, from my exhaustion with being the way I was. I wanted out from my toxic obsession with, with self. I had to get busted little by little. My mind is classically alcoholic. Half of it thinks everything's going great, and the other half says the jig's up, and they're going to find out what a loser I am. Without dropping down out of my head, without meditation, without prayer, it's like a ping-pong game in there. It's partly about dropping down, but it's also about stepping back and letting things get bigger and more spacious, so I'm not caught in this cramped, clenched fist of a mind. Just relaxing the thinking muscle and breathing down into my heart space. Once you start breathing, you can get your sense of humor back. Then you're halfway home. That is Anne Lamott. And it may not be to the point of this program, but I also love her answer to Delahante's next question, so I'm going to include it anyway. He asks whether her working with her heart and mind has affected her writing, and she replies, With writing, I don't talk about inspiration much. I talk about showing up and just doing it. I never feel like writing, ever. So I have lots of tricks. I give myself very short assignments and write god-awful first drafts. And I use bribes. Once my butt is in the chair, if I write for 45 minutes, I get to take the dogs to the park or watch the news at the top of the hour. One thing I've learned about writing is that you have to stay with it. If you do that, it will let you know what, what it needs to be. The most important thing is to keep your butt in the chair. Then something will shift. Something will get back to you. And that's the secret of life. Be where your butt is. I think that's such a canny answer because it can be used for anything, but particularly our meditation practice, can't it? Be where your butt is, on the cushion, and something will in due course shift. Something will get back to you. However, getting back to the slogan, it seems that in her cultivation of what she calls mercy, Anne Lamott has a good solution to turning a god into a demon in line with Pema Chodron's teachings on Tonglen. And now, as a kind of summary of what we've been talking about, here is Jamyong Kontrol's commentary on the slogan. His book, The Great Path to Awakening, uses the translation, Don't Reduce a God to a Demon, and he says, If as you meditate on mind training, your personality becomes stiff with pride and arrogance, it's as though you've reduced a God to a demon. Dharma has become non-Dharma. The more you meditate on mind training and dharma, the more supple your personality should become. Act as the lowest servant to everyone. And then for the final comment on the slogan, we turn back to Pema Chodron, specifically to her book, Start Where You Are, A Guide to Compassionate Living, in which she writes, Abandon poisonous food and don't make gods into demons are warnings that only you know whether what you are doing is good practice. It's gods or good food. 
Anything could be used to build yourself up and smooth things over and calm things down or to keep everything under control. Good food becomes poisonous food and gods become demons when you use them to keep yourself in that room with the doors and windows closed. Now let's go to the final slogan in this section of the text. Don't seek others' misery as a means to happiness. Says Namkapel, this refers to waiting to capitalize on others' misfortune. You should train yourself never to act in such a fashion. Now, of course, this could refer to the John Keys of our society, those who swoop in to purchase and dismantle businesses in trouble for a healthy profit, or summarily dismiss employees for the sake of greater profits. But we are not all smiling assassins. We all do share, however, an emotion that doesn't have a label in English, perhaps because we regard it as so shameful. So we've commandeered a German word, and schadenfreude has entered common usage in our vocabulary. In his book, The Joy of Pain, Richard H. Smith explains that the word is a compound from schaden, meaning harm, and freude, meaning joy, and together they indicate taking pleasure in the suffering of others. And that is certainly covered by our slogan, and it gets mixed press in our society. Some people revel in it, others find it repulsive. Triska Weinstein, a freelance writer and editor and editorial manager at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, has explored it on www.sonima.com in an article with a distinct Buddhist flavor titled What We Can Learn from Schadenfreude. She says, according to research, it is a normal human emotion, but asks whether we shouldn't question it. She writes, in an age when compassion and positivity have become buzzwords and feeling grateful is a hashtag, not just a state of mind, there might be less tolerance than ever for our uglier, less generous emotions. We're encouraged to embrace our anger, befriend our fear and reframe our vulnerabilities as strengths. But experiencing a secret little thrill about somebody else's misfortune, that's just shameful. It's no surprise that our word for it comes directly from another language. Schadenfreude is a concept we sunny, self-aggrandizing Americans don't want to lay claim to. Yet it's also a common and normal human response, according to researchers. In a study at Princeton University, participants were connected to an electromyogram which captures the electrical activity produced when we feel pleasure, and shown photographs of groups meant to elicit particular emotions, such as the elderly, pity, and rich professionals, envy. Then each set of images was paired with a positive, negative, or neutral event, and participants were asked how they felt about each pairing. The electrical activity showed that most of them experienced pleasure when observing the suffering of those they envied, even though not all of them admitted it. From an evolutionary perspective, scientists theorize that schadenfreude could be a natural product of competition between rivals over limited resources. Certainly, it appears to be inborn. In a study titled, There is no joy like malicious joy, kids as young as two exhibited signs of schadenfreude towards peers who were favored over them. Interestingly, altruism and compassion also appear to be instinctive, at least when no threat is present. In another study, children as young as 18 months typically stopped what they were doing in order to help a stranger in need. So, if taking joy in others' pain is innate in us, 
can it also serve as an opportunity to look more closely at ourselves? Can we bring greater awareness to the involuntary reactions of our lizard brain? Unraveling the tangled web of emotions associated with schadenfreude can help us pinpoint the sources of this uncomfortable yet seemingly unavoidable feeling. A study of brain activity in situations that evoked envy and schadenfreude showed a strong correlation between them. Participants who experienced one were likely to experience the other. With envy, we feel bad about ourselves in light of the success of others, and with schadenfreude, we feel good about their misfortunes, says Arnie Kozak, a psychologist, clinical assistant professor in psychiatry at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, and author of Mindfulness A to Z, 108 Insights for Awakening Now and The Awakened Introvert. Both are predicated on social comparison and a sense that we're in competition with others for resources, such as fame, wealth, success and admiration. Sharing something in common with the target strengthens these feelings, which explains why we often experience schadenfreude in relation to friends, colleagues, siblings and other peers, the people we are most likely to be in competition with, in our minds at least. Triska Weinstein writes that in the end, the emotions sparking schadenfreude, like feeling threatened, jealous or inferior, relate to and come out of our primary goal in life, to develop, reinforce and protect our sense of self. She quotes Sam Chase, author of Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, who says, The person who threatens us makes us fear losing the sense of self we have, while the person we envy makes us fear that the self we have is not enough. Both figures are prime targets for schadenfreude. Their suffering makes us feel like our carefully crafted sense of self is safe and sufficient. But instead of sitting in this self-satisfying sensation, we can use it as a signal to probe deeper into our own sense of who we are. What in me is being threatened? Where is the source of the envy, the outrage or the low self-esteem? Weinstein writes that studies show that with low self-esteem, we are significantly more likely to enjoy the misfortunes of others. She continues, Kozak adds a few more questions to consider when confronting schadenfreude. What unmet need might be at play? And what is a more skillful way to go about fulfilling that need? For instance, is your glee at someone's failure a way to protect yourself against your own fears of failure? Perhaps it's time to take a risk to make yourself more vulnerable. In her now classic book on spirituality and creativity, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron suggests combating envy by first locating its precise form, then identifying why it feels like a burden, and finally deciding on an action that can be taken to address it. Tresca Weinstein then references the four virtues the Buddha encouraged us to aspire to, which could be seen as inoculations against or antidotes to schadenfreude. These include mudita, uh, sympathetic joy or appreciation, metta, which is loving kindness, upeka, which is equanimity, and karuna, compassion. She quotes Kozak, a Buddhist scholar and faculty member for the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies with, if schadenfreude and envy assume happiness is a zero-sum game, that is, there's only so much happiness to go around, then appreciation and compassion assume that happiness is unlimited 
and that I don't need to be in competition with you. She writes, Kozak and Chase point to a response to schadenfreude that transcends ego and our limited notions of who we are. In Buddhism, it's called anatta or not-self. The self that can experience envy and schadenfreude experiences itself as a distinct enduring entity that can be afflicted by the rises and falls of life's fortunes, Kozak says. If the self, however, is experienced as a fluid changing process that is not owned by the person, difficult emotions are less likely to arise. So there's something to think about for the next week because now our time is up and we must say farewell. Please dedicate as usual to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for being with us today and may all go well until we meet again. Goodbye. Ah.